Hello, and welcome to another special bonus episode of Power Pros Podcast. As usual, I am your host, the Hoff Chris Hoffman, and I am joined once again by my special guest co-host, Mark Deschamps of ComicBook.com. Always great to be here, Hoff. Yeah, I'm really glad you could join me for this episode, Mark, because we are here this time to celebrate 15 years of the Nintendo Wii. We are going to talk about the system as a whole. We're going to talk about some of our favorite underrated games on the console. And then we're going to have a big ol' look back at one of its most prominent games, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. I'm really happy to be doing this one. It's so surreal to think that it's been 15 years since the Wii launched. Yeah, 15 years already. A decade and a half. Can you believe it? No, no, I absolutely can't. Because <laughs> I remember launch like it was yesterday. It's weird. All right. Yep, well, it is true. So, yeah, let's kick things off with some uh, memories and general thoughts of the system overall. And, you know, for me, I think the Wii is one of the most meaningful Nintendo systems out there, both personally and professionally, as it very much coincided with my career at Nintendo Power. I was right there in the trenches of the Nintendo marketing department, you know, writing for NP around the time that the system came out. You know, the system launched a little over a year after I first started with Nintendo Power, and my time at Nintendo Power then ended several years later with the launch of Wii successor, the Wii U. So I was pretty much there for the entire wild ride. I was there when they announced the name and everybody was making Wii Wii jokes. (laughs) One of my old bosses even called me up just to make fun of the name. I was there when Nintendo unveiled the controller that was basically a TV remote control. And my colleagues came back from a trip to Japan where they got to see it firsthand. And they're like, okay, I know this sounds crazy, but this is what the new system is all about and started filling us in. And I was there as Nintendo was discussing expanding the gaming audience and Reggie was talking about his blue ocean strategy to go after these untapped markets. And I was there during the debates of, you know, how do you sell this system when technologically it doesn't hold a candle to its contemporaries at the time, which were the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360. You know, it's funny. I look back at that era and I I look back at the pre-launch And I remember when I first saw it and I thought, oh, my God, what are they doing? (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody did. Even we did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was funny because, you know, growing up, I don't want to say growing up because I was was in high school when the GameCube launched. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I remember going to, you know, my lunchroom table during the GameCube days and and arguing and defending, you know, Nintendo, you know, that this, they're not a kitty system, you know, they've got Resident Evil and Eternal Darkness and, you know, you've just got to give it a chance. And then they introduce, you know, this controller and this device. And I'm going, oh, my God, like, like, what are they thinking? Like, this is this is, you know, the end, it, you know, it's in the back of my mind. Like, this thing is never going to be a hit. And, you know, I followed Nintendo through thick and thin. And, you know, I had huge doubts when when that controller first got mm-hmm. revealed. That's understandable. But uh, they proved us all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing is that it totally worked. It all totally worked. You know, after more or less getting its butt kicked during the GameCube and N64 eras, Nintendo made a huge comeback with this thing. And, you know, I consider myself pretty much a core gamer. So it really wasn't the the casual approach that interested me. And, you know, like you, I certainly had 
concerns. But nonetheless, seeing this thing come out and to be there and to be part of this phenomenon, to be able to help with the unveiling and tell all Nintendo's fans what this thing is all about and why they should care was just you know, really, really cool. I was able to help inform people, you know, it's not just about the motion controls, it's also about the Miis, it's the Wii Shop channel, it's the Pro Controller, it's everything else, and a lot of that had never been part of the Nintendo ecosystem before. You know, the thing that's really cool about Wii is that there was stuff for everyone. You know, there was stuff for grandma, there was stuff for casual players, there was stuff for little kids, but there was also stuff that was aimed at the core gaming audience, at least, you know, during part of the time. You know, Grandma was not the one who was playing The Legend of Zelda and Metroid Prime 3 and Super Mario Galaxy. When the system launched, you know, Wii Sports had all the headlines, and that's for good reason. But personally, I was just playing Zelda and Metal Slug Anthology and Trauma Center, and I was having a blast. I was all over it. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's still surreal to think how well they were able to find just this wide market of gamers. Mm -hmm. You know, every time I go over to my mother-in-law's house, she's still got, you know, the Wii games on her bookshelf. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so it's crazy to see, you know, just how many people still have it and they still have it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was really the right idea at just the right time, and it really resonated with people. And so, you know, being able to be part of that and watch the gaming world change from the inside was just amazing. You know, it switched from skepticism and wee-wee jokes to seeing this thing succeed and become a massive hit worldwide. And that was just amazing. So, you know, I went from this early era to a new era where, you know, we was sold out everywhere for like, a year, maybe more than a year, and friends and acquaintances were coming out of the woodwork asking me to get a system for them internally because they couldn't find them in shops anywhere. Like even my parents ended up wanting one and I got one for them. And suddenly my me, the me I created of myself was like on t-shirts and promotional store displays. <laughs> it was like in Toys R Us. I walk into Toys R Us one day. It's like, hey, I know that me. That's actually my me. It was crazy. You know, I didn't know that was going to happen. And it was just sort of kind of awesome. Yeah, I'll never forget when I realized it was going to be a big deal because, you know, my skepticism had started to fade, you know, in the months, you know, building up to it. But I'll never forget on launch day, I had secured a pre-order about a month ahead of time, Mm -hmm. but I went to Toys R Us to pick it up on launch day and there was a line wrapped around the building. Oh, wow. And I could not believe it. Just being this guy, you know, like I said, in the trenches, arguing you know how great the gamecube is Mm -hmm. to seeing just this line of people waiting for a nintendo system it was so weird yeah that's awesome yeah lucky for me i did not have to actually wait in a big line i think they did do some sort of pre-order promotion at the internal nintendo store but i was able to you know walk over pick it up anytime during the day it was really nice and easy yeah that's cool but like i said it, it ended up being a good memory Especially since I had a pre-order, so I got to skip that line and just walk in. And it was funny because I clutched onto that thing for dear life because I remember walking past that line and I'm like, I'm going to get jumped at (laughs) 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday walking in my car with this thing. That is a very real possibility. These things were in super high demand. It was indeed crazy times. 
But yeah, while uh, getting the system, you know, was not too terribly tough for me, certainly there were things about the system that were quite the challenge. Uh, one of the things that was a huge debate at Nintendo internally was, you know, how to show consumers the fun of this system. I mean, obviously it was something we were able to do, Nintendo as a whole, but uh, early on, you know, there was a lot of uh, consternation going on behind the scenes because we, in very many ways, you know, it's an experiential system. You know, you look at the game's graphics and they don't really look any better than GameCube. Sometimes maybe they look even worse than GameCube, but the trick was when you actually play it and you actually are doing these bowling motions and tennis swings and then you can be like, oh, okay, yes, I understand how this is literally a game changer. You can understand, you know, what the system is all about. It's not just about the visuals. And it's like, okay, yes, I need to get this system. Yeah, you know, looking back at it, it's one of those things where it really is a, a seeing is believing type thing. Yeah. I can't imagine how tough that would have had to be to try to hype that up in print, <laughs> you know, in retrospect. Yes. You couldn't even have, like, kiosks really... Because, you know, with how the, the motions had to be, you know, for, for the Wii remote, I'd imagine it would be really hard. You know, you look at a normal kiosk that the controller is stuck basically in one position. Yeah, well, I mean, Nintendo did have live events and live demos. They were able to get out there in people's hands. They were able to, you know, let them try it out and see what it was like. They were able to, you know, get good placement on television programs where they could see people, you know, actually playing with the controllers and seeing how it's done, not just looking at the graphics on the screen. But yes, for Nintendo Power, it was certainly quite an issue. You know, ideally what we would do is, you know, we would show people the game, people would see the game, they would be interested in the game. But, you know, with something like this, it's a little bit different. And upper management thought that the usual approach, you know, wouldn't be enough. And I think in some respects, you know, that is a fair approach to take to it. But what they want us to do, you know, was to not show the game. They want us to show the fun. They want us to show the player. We want to show the player having fun and show them how the game was supposed to be played. So at the time, the buzzword was lifestyle shots. And that meant that pretty much every game we covered in Nintendo Power was supposed to be focused not so much on screenshots, but around lifestyle shots photography of people swinging a Wii remote and grinning from ear to ear. So if you look at those launch issues of NP, you will see these lifestyle photos everywhere. You know, it's really funny that you mention that because, you know, as I've said repeatedly on the podcast, you know, I was a longtime Nintendo Power subscriber, but I remember that right around that time, probably a few months prior to, to the Wii's launch, the magazine got glossier and brighter. All the GameCube era, Nintendo 64 era, you know, issues, they were notably dark. And as soon as, like, the Wii era started getting closer, it seemed like all the pages brightened up. All the colors that were used brightened up. Huh. And the style of paper, the paper quality, greatly improved. And I don't know if that was, you know, an intentional move on Nintendo's part to make it easier to, you know, sell the lifestyle photos and you know, show off the way that the Wii games were working, but it worked. 
You know, I can't say I know if that was part of the reason for those changes as well. You know, if that was the reason behind it, we were able to convince them, oh, we got to have, you know, better paper so we can show off these lifestyle photos. I am not sure. But at any rate, yeah, that was what they wanted us to do was to show these lifestyle photos for pretty much every game. And, you know, as a writer, it was like really scary. It was like, <laughs> oh, man, every single game is supposed to be covered this way. That's a lot of games. That means a lot of photos. And uh, it was, you know, very worrying how much extra work it was going to take putting together an issue. So fortunately, the magazine management, you know, had a lot of discussions with the rest of the marketing people and, you know, the higher ups. And they were able to get them to not make us do it for every single game. Because, I mean, you know, the magazine was already made for a pretty hardcore, enthusiastic fan base. You know, not all of those people are into the casual stuff. They don't really necessarily need to be convinced that, uh, you know, the fun uh, is exists because you can see it in these photos. You know, do they care about, uh, you know, lifestyle pictures of people grinning while uh, swinging the Wii Remote? I think most of the Nintendo Power fans want to just see the games. So by convincing upper management that there was that factor, as well as the fact that just doing it for every single game was really not uh, doable, uh, we saw a lot of compromise, which was we could use icons that showed how the game was controlled for smaller coverage like reviews and previews, and we pretty much only had to use lifestyle photos for big features and maybe only first-party releases. And fortunately, the longer Wii was out, the more the concept of Wii was understood, the less this became necessary. And, you know, after a few months, everyone's like, okay, yes, I know what Wii is. And so we were no longer required to do that for every single game. And, you know, before long, it was pretty much phased out entirely. But for a while... Yeah, it was uh, kind of rough, the uh, approach and direction that we were supposed to be taking with everything. So uh, even now, all this time later, I hear the word uh, lifestyle photos, and I get a little bit of uh, PTSD, and that is not a term I use lightly. <laughs> so that covers most of my memories of the early days of Wii. Did you have anything else you wanted to share, Mark? Yeah, you know, it was funny. Um, the Wii came you know, right in the middle of like my college experience, kind of towards my like junior year. Mm -hmm. And that was a really cool way to experience that system. You know, I, I remember, I'll never forget, actually, the system came out about a week or two before a house party that I had mm -hmm. with a bunch of people. And the first thing I thought was, I'm like, if I put this system out, one of those controllers is going through the TV. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I had to like hide the system when people came over. And when it was down to like three or four people towards the end of the night, a friend who's now actually my brother-in-law, he said to me, he's like, you've got to take the system out. Like you, like we have to see this thing. So I finally relented and I'm like, okay, we've all, you know, had, you know, a, a, a bunch of Lon Lon milk all night. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have it milk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like making sure everybody has the wrist strap on and, you know, it, it all worked out, but it was fun to experience that in college, you know, and, and not just, you know, that, but 
I had turned 21, you know, like right before. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool because, you know, you'd go out to the bar and, you know, you'd be talking about retro games and you had the virtual console now. Yeah, yeah. So I'd get home from, you know, the bar at two o'clock in the morning and I'm like, the milk bar, well, I'm going to go download Sonic the Hedgehog or, you know, Super Mario World or Donkey Kong Country or Wave Race. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of extra money because of that. But yeah, it was a really fun element of the system yeah virtual console was awesome it was great being able to revisit all these games from all these classic systems i mean not only was it the first time nintendo had done anything like that but it was nes and n64 and super nes and genesis and turbo graphics and neo geo and i don't think any system since then has have such an extensive library of classic games as we it seems yeah and on top of that you know when you look at it kind of historically and a lot of you know younger listeners might not realize this retro gaming was a very different thing like pre-wii yeah like there wasn't a lot of accessibility beyond like emulators no i mean it would be like oh here's a series of game boy advance cartridges here are classic nes games each on their individual cartridge for 20 bucks a pop yeah and suddenly with we could just download these things for a couple of bucks like boom i just got actors for eight bucks you can't stop me <laughs> i mean we are so spoiled right now and it all started from the wii era yes that is totally true. I mean, I remember on GameCube, uh, the Mega Man, I think it was Anniversary Collection or yeah. something like that. And that was a huge deal because we hadn't had anything like that. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely one of the many breakthrough features of Wii. I mean, it had all these different channels. You know, like I said earlier, it had the Miis, which was a whole new thing and, uh, you know, still persists to this day. Lots of uh, cool and different and unique features that let it stand out and be like, you know, nothing else Nintendo had done to that point. And let me let me say one last thing that, that I really loved about the system. And one thing that I do kind of miss, because I don't think any other console has done anything like this. I loved that flashing blue light when you got a mail from like Nintendo or from like a oh, friend. Oh yeah, the blue light special. Oh, when you'd wake up and you'd see that blue light on. That was so cool. Like, you know, usually it was nothing that big. <laughs> yeah. But it was, there was such a novelty to it. You know, I'd get back from, you know, a college class or I'd wake up and that thing was flashing and I thought it was so cool. Yeah. I mean, even working at Nintendo Power, I would come home from work and I'd see the blue light, you know, kind of flickering on there and it would still be kind of like, oh, what is that? I have to see. I better find out. <laughs> I can't believe no other console's done anything like remotely like that. Yeah. It is kind of strange now that you think about it. But uh, yeah, cool feature for sure. Anyway, you know, those are our memories of what we thought of the Wii. We reached out over Twitter to find out what some of our listeners had to say about their favorite Wii memories. And here are some of their responses. From former PowerPros co-host at Plastic Bugs, he says, Though motion controls get a bad rap these days, Wii Sports on launch felt truly revolutionary. And he was right from at Londragon underscore UK. They said, after moving halfway around the world and dropping off of gaming, the Wii and sports in particular revitalized my love for gaming. Then a plethora of great titles cemented it. Ah, that's awesome. And it really did have a great library. Yeah, for sure. Then we have at GeekBro27 who writes, having my parents join us in gaming, drunk Wii bowling, and the virtual console. Yeah, those were all great features. Drunk on milk, I assume. Of, of course. 
at Sierra Offline said, violent flashbacks to embarrassing sing-star duets of Destiny's Child, I'm a Survivor, with my girlfriend from about four girlfriends ago. Rest in peace, me. <laughs> and then from at Retro Revolution, that person shares, I was never huge on the far too often not great motion controls, but I still had a lot of fun with this console at the time. With the virtual console and WiiWare, plus certain retail titles, it was like a renaissance of 2D gaming. And it had GameCube backwards compatibility, two systems in one. And I was thinking about that GameCube backwards compatibility earlier. It was wild how much they made that a selling point with, like, you know, the ports right on it and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't end up using it that much, but it was great to have in there. Like you said, four controller ports built right in. You just pop in your old GameCube discs. Yeah, great feature. At Sphil64 says, I love the split controller design. The Wiimote was my favorite way to aim. I just have to go out there and say, Wiimote is a banned term at Nintendo and Nintendo Power. We could never use the term Wiimote. If we did, the Nintendo Ninjas would cut us down for sure. <laughs> then we have at Antidotes, who writes, Brawl, Metroid Prime Trilogy, Bit Trip, Skyward Sword, Wii Sports, Tatsunoko vs. Capcom, new play control games, virtual console, WiiWare, great times. Yeah, that was a great list of stuff there. At Joel Carroll writes, I remember Nintendo sending out free silicone sleeves in reaction to so many people chucking their Wiimotes at their televisions and loved ones. Love the art style games like Cubello and Orbient, had GameCube connectors built in, can't forget the amazing console music. Yeah, and when it comes to uh, you know chucking your Wii remote across the room, I will admit my parents did indeed do that. After I got them a Wii, yeah, there was a Wii remote that went flying. It went over the TV and into the wall, fortunately. <laughs> uh, didn't damage anything, didn't break the TV, didn't damage the remote or the wall. But yes, I did get to see that live and in person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was certainly something. I don't think I ever any, I saw anybody actually do it. It was always a fear, though. <laughs> yeah, it actually happened to me. I was like, ah, this will never happen. That's crazy talk. You don't need to worry about this wrist strap. Nope, it totally happened. <laughs> so next, we have at Dustin Orend, who writes, played a lot of Wii Sports, Just Dance, and Geometry Wars. At Aaron Stabbert said, playing Metroid Prime 3 Corruption on launch day during the month of Metroid back in August 2007 and playing Skyward Sword on launch day with the gold Wii Remote Plus, which I still have, by the way, and seeing Sonic's reveal trailer for Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all good picks. That Sonic trailer was a moment. And they picked Live and Learn, which I love that song. I don't care. I know it's cheesy. I love that song. <laughs> From at Jaden Hardy 10, he simply writes, Metroid Prime 3 Corruption. Second best in the series. At Thousand Year Games says, waiting in line for 17 hours just to get one, finally playing Twilight Princess after years of hype, and connecting my console to that newfangled Wi-Fi for the first time ever for that sweet, sweet virtual console. Oh yeah, that's hardcore. 17 hours in line, man, that is kind of nuts. But yeah, in the end, kind of all worth it. Oh, absolutely. So, as I think those comments prove, one of the great things about the Wii, and I alluded to this earlier, is that it did have something for everyone, you know? There were casual players I know that basically just put Wii Sports in their system and they, like, never took it out. And for them, that was fine. Games like Mario Kart Wii had super broad appeal. You know, someone mentioned Just Dance, and that was huge on Wii. 
Uh, and for core gamers, you know, there was stuff like Smash Brothers Brawl, Super Mario Galaxy, Twilight Princess, Metroid Prime Trilogy, later Skyward Sword and Xenoblade Chronicles. And the third parties, you know, they weren't quite sure at first, but as soon as they saw it was a hit, they were pretty quick to come on board. And so, you know, we had just so many users, such a big user base, it was crazy for them not to do so. But the thing that was kind of funny was it seemed like success always came at one extreme or the other. It was either some super casual waggle fest minigame collection, you know, like carnival games, or it was some big name first party franchise like Zelda or Mario. And I feel like those are the kind of games that the system is remembered for. You know, that's most of what we heard in uh, this list we just went through. But, um, you know, I feel like, in fact, there were a lot of third-party games out there that were hoping to tap into this core market. But, you know, maybe a lot of them kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, you know, it's funny looking at the Switch era because, you know, Switch is easily Nintendo's biggest success since Wii. Yeah. And while it hasn't, I don't think it's surpassed Wii's uh, lifetime sales yet, but when you look at software sales comparatively, the Wii had so many games for it, but had so few that sold, you know, a, a lot of copies. Yeah. And you look at the Switch era and everybody's buying everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything seems to have a pretty good chance across the board of being a hit. Back in the Wii days, not so much. No, no. It, it just didn't have people buying a lot of games because there were a lot of people that bought Wii Sports and that's all that sat in the console or they bought Wii Sports and Mario Kart. Yep, yep. And, you know, we tried to draw attention to this other stuff in Nintendo Power every time we could, you know, bring these games to light so they didn't get overlooked. But a lot of times it was still an uphill battle. So that's what this next segment is going to be about, discussing these you know hidden gems that are out there on Wii that perhaps they're underrated, underappreciated, or simply less remembered than they deserve to be. So, uh, yeah, let's dig into some of these uh, hidden gems. And the first game I want to bring up is a game that was actually mentioned by one of our listeners that uh, we were just going through a little bit ago, and that is Tatsunoko vs. Capcom Ultimate All-Stars, which, if you haven't played it, is just this insane versus tag team fighting game. And it has real recognizable Capcom characters like Ryu, Chun-Li, Mega Man, Zero, Morgan from Darkstalkers, Frank West from Dead Rising, Beautiful Joe, and then they went up against all these anime characters like uh, Yatterman and Ken the Eagle and Gold Lighten. And you know, if I'm being honest, I don't really know that many of the Tatsunoko characters. I'm fairly unfamiliar with most of those shows, but that didn't matter to me. They were all fun to play. The action was completely insane. You know, you start having a match and you're racking up these crazy combos that do dozens of hits. And like on the screen, it's like, you know, 3.6 billion damage. And, you know, compared to Capcom's other fighting games, the action was streamlined a little bit to support three attack buttons and a tag button rather than six different attack buttons. But it did not detract from the gameplay at all. And in fact, this might just be the best fighting game on Wii, right up there with Super Smash Brothers Brawl. And it's just a shame that uh, it hasn't come to any 
other consoles since then. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I'm a very casual fighting game fan. I bought this. Um, I was a little disappointed, I'm not going to lie, because I was really hoping that we would get a Marvel versus Capcom game on Wii. Mm. And like this was kind of like my like way of showing Capcom, like, hey, we people, we owners will buy, you know, a Capcom fighting game if you bring it. And I ended up having a lot of fun with it. I actually, there was one anime that I was familiar with from the game, which was Battle of the Planets, which I had watched growing up on on Cartoon Network. Mm -hmm. So that's the one that's probably the most recognizable on there for North American audiences. Yeah, yeah. So that was cool. But the Capcom roster was great. So uh, it was still a fun game, despite the fact that it was not Marvel versus Capcom. Yes, absolutely. And another game that I absolutely love on Wii is The Last Story. It is absolutely one of my favorite RPGs from the last decade and is probably the number one Wii game I would replay right now if I had the free time to do so. This is one of the you know, quote-unquote Operation Rainfall games alongside Xenoblade Chronicles that was being ignored for North America, it seemed. And even though Nintendo ended up never releasing it here after all, Xseed picked it up, and for that I am super grateful. It is more of an intimate type of RPG than you know, other options that are out there. It's more about this handful of characters and the happenings of this small country that they're in rather than this big globe-spanning epic quest trying to save the world. But I felt like it really, really worked to have something that was different and more personal like that. It also has what I consider to be one of the more convincing romances in a video game, uh, those being between the main characters, Zael and Callista. And you add to that some unique real-time combat mechanics, a few cover and shooter elements, and some of the best visuals on Wii, and I don't think it's hard to see what makes this game so special. One thing that is unfortunate is that the multiplayer component has long since been abandoned. That was a really cool and different feature, but even more Unfortunate is the fact that, unlike Xenoblade, this game has not gotten any sequels or lived on on any other platforms. It's really weird, you know, thinking about Operation Rainfall. And, you know, nowadays we're so spoiled because pretty much everything Nintendo puts out comes over here. Yeah. With the rare exception. And it was such a fight to get those games over here. It was. I don't know why Nintendo was so against bringing those out at the time. It's like, no, all casual all the time. But, uh, hey, we got them. We got them. It was was a battle, though, and and I respect everybody who was part of the fight to get those games over here. Yep. And, uh, boy, in this case, you know, I couldn't be more happy that it did finally happen. But speaking of XSeed, another great game that they released here is Little King's Story. And that title probably also didn't quite get the sales it deserved. It's this cute, charming, real-time strategy RPG. Sort of, you know, Pikmin-style gameplay combined with fantasy and kingdom building and a very quirky sense of humor. You're basically the king of nothing. You're just like some kid who became king because he found a crown somewhere. At the beginning of the game, you are told your kingdom consists of three ministers, three cows... 12 citizens, and you have 100% unemployment and no money at all. (laughs) Uh, But little by little, you start expanding your kingdom, you teach your minions new job skills, you learn to fight enemies, and you grow into like, you know, this real powerhouse. And it's just charming, has tons of depth, 
and uh, you know, I think it did have a sequel on like PSP or maybe PlayStation Vita that never really went anywhere. But yeah, it's kind of a shame that that series was not a bigger hit. I think that this was a, a game that suffered from its art style, not because it wasn't charming, but because there were so many shovelware games for Wii that had kind of that similar aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of games, a lot of good games got buried because of it. Yeah, I think it was mostly ignored because it kind of looked like maybe it was too kiddie. You know, the name Little King Story probably didn't do itself any favors. But uh, yeah, you look past those things, and you'll get a really fantastic game behind it. Another one that I think could have used more attention is Trauma Team. And you know, DS players, I'm sure, remember Trauma Center, which was a bit of a sensation on that system. Sort of a medical drama equivalent of like Ace Attorney, where you're mending broken bones and stitching up wounds and excising tumors, along with a bunch of uh, you know, anime-style characters and cutscenes. And Trauma Team was the third game in the series to come out on Wii, and I believe the fifth overall, and it mixed things up by having six playable characters with interconnected stories, as well as different gameplay. These ranged from surgery and emergency first aid, which were basically variants on the gameplay of previous games in the Trauma Center series, to medical diagnosis and even forensic investigation, which were more about you know reading text and piecing together clues. And I really appreciated the variety myself. I also like the fact the difficulty was dialed back a bit from some of the other entries in the series, which really could be brutal at times. Uh, But I guess audiences didn't quite care for it overall because the series was shelved after this entry. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My mother, who was never like a, a big gamer, she bought a DS when Nintendo was really pushing, you know, that system hard to different audiences mm-hmm. and uh, you know she got really into like the whole brain age thing so I bought her the first trauma center mm-hmm. and I thought oh well my mother's a neonatal nurse practitioner she'll love this and just did not fly <laughs> at all whatsoever and that totally turned me off the series never never gave it another shot because of that but that's uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the developer's fault <laughs> no, that's unfortunate but that first one that first one is especially brutal like I swear I had to do like finger gymnastics that I didn't even think were humanly possible to get through that game as far as I did. I don't even know if I ever actually beat it. I got really close, though. But yeah, that one was super tough. Probably should have looked into the difficulty a little more before (laughs) giving it to my very casual gaming mother. (laughs) Well, I have to say, there are several difficulty options to choose from in Trauma Team, so if the difficulty of the previous game scared you away, don't worry about that for this one. Another game I would consider a hidden gem is A Boy and His Blob. And again, it is time for me to make the disclaimer. This is developed by none other than WayForward, where, of course, I am now employed. But I have been seeing the praises of this game for well over 10 years now, regardless of where I worked. I reviewed it at Nintendo Power, and at the time, I called it beautiful, refreshing, and challenging, and it still is. The 2D cell-style animation is still stunning even all these years later, and the gameplay, which involves using various flavors of jelly beans to transform this alien blob into different objects to solve puzzles, holds up as well. And it's challenging in a Mario-type way, like it's not that hard to get to the end, but if you want to find all the secrets and beat all of the hidden challenges, you are totally going to have to earn them. 
And this game actually just came out on Switch, so if you missed it on Wii, you can easily correct that mistake. I'm one of those people that missed it on Wii. I've always wanted to give it a try, and it's on my like to check out list on Switch because I love the style of this game. Yeah, you totally should. And you know, if you ever played the old NES version, you know that game could be uh, really confusing. You know, it's like, what do I do next? This game has solved all those problems. So uh, yeah, it's very much worth checking out. And another game I would very strongly advise you look into on Wii is Clonoa which was this amazing platformer from Namco that originally released on PlayStation. It got critical acclaim and it got a few sequels on PlayStation 2 and Game Boy Advance, but you know it never quite took off like people hoped. You know, those that played it thought it was amazing, but uh, you know it just seemed like it wasn't quite catching on. You know, it had this great gameplay hook of being able to grab enemies and then throw them as weapons or use them to launch into the air. It had these glorious cartoon visuals and a surprisingly emotional story. And we were really lucky in that we did get this nicer, prettier remake on Wii, but it seems like even fewer people were paying attention at this time. Like, I know the creators really wanted to bring over Klonoa 2 and then maybe make Klonoa 3 if Klonoa on Wii had been a hit, but it was just not to be. And it is an absolute shame, but if you can find this game, absolutely play it. I remember that there were a lot of reviewers and a lot of people in the industry pushing that game hard. They really wanted that game to succeed. Yeah. And it just could not break through for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I was one of them. I think I did a feature. I probably did a review. And uh, yeah, just felt like we were shouting off the rooftops in the middle of nowhere. I don't know why. But uh, yeah, the game is amazing. Uh, another one that uh, people should check out is Silent Hill Shattered Memories. This was a reimagining of the original Silent Hill game from Konami, which is perhaps my favorite survival horror game ever made. And this version changes things up a lot, like taking away any element of combat, which seems kind of strange at first, but, you know, it kind of makes perfect sense for a horror game. I mean, what's scarier than, you know, not being able to fight back and just having to flee for your life? In addition to that, it made some cool use of Wii features like the Wii Remote Speaker and Motion Control, and I think it ended up being one of the better entries in the series, probably the best entry in the series that was uh, developed in North America, for sure. But, you know, I guess M-rated horror and the Wii were not all that great a match. But uh, nonetheless, I say it is totally worth seeking out. Yeah, just one of those, you know, tragedies. You know, we saw that a lot in the GameCube era. You know, Eternal Darkness is one of my favorite underrated survival horror games Mm -hmm. and suffered the same fate, just nobody was buying it on Nintendo. Yeah, I don't know what went on there because it seems like Resident Evil 4 was able to break through, but, you know, I guess Resident Evil's on, you know, basically a different plane of existence than everything else. Uh, Everything else has a much tougher time getting through to uh, player base, I suppose. Absolutely. Anyway, speaking of Konami, they also released some of the best WiiWare exclusive titles that are out there, those being Castlevania, Contra, and Gradius Rebirth, which were all, you know, basically classic 2D old school style entries in those series that went back to their roots. You know, nothing too crazy, just sticking to the basics with really solid action, rock and soundtracks and 16-bit style visuals. 
Plus, it was like, you know, the first traditional action platformer Castlevania in ages. But you know, anyway, all three of those games really captured the spirits of their predecessors, really captured the spirits of those franchises. But, you know, they were only on WiiWare. Now the Wii Shop is gone and they never got poured to any other systems. So if you don't already have them on your old Wii or maybe your Wii U, you are kind of out of luck. So I really hope Konami brings those back one day. Yeah, there's a lot of WiiWare games and a lot of PlayStation Store games from that era that are just gone. There's a lot more attention being paid now to preservation of that kind of digital material. But um, unfortunately, that, that doesn't mean anything for a lot of these games. And hopefully, you know, those being from Konami, will see them again someday. But it's tough to say. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Are there any other uh, hidden gems on Wii you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I was a big fan of House of the Dead Overkill. Nice. I was never a big fan of the series, but um, for whatever reason, the grindhouse approach that they went with for that game really worked for me, and uh, I loved it. I actually grabbed one of those Nerf light guns that they had for the Wii at the time, (laughs) and uh, I didn't buy the Nerf game because it just kind of looked lame to me, but I needed an excuse to get a nerf gun and that was the perfect one so playing house of the dead overkill with this nerf light gun was such a great memory of that system for me yeah i haven't played that one in a long time myself i do remember it being really really good and it is indeed a game that deserved more attention on the wii and speaking of horror grisly titles released by sega uh, mad world i think is another one that really didn't get enough attention i mean One of the cool things about Wii was that because it was not as advanced a system as its contemporaries, companies were able to get like really experimental and do stuff that, you know, maybe they wouldn't want to take a risk on on PlayStation 3 or Xbox. And so we got stuff that was really crazy and cool, like Mad World with this monochromatic black and white and blood red aesthetic. It was action packed. It was violent. And it really deserved a lot more attention than it got. That's funny because that was also one of the rare M-rated games that I think graced the cover of Nintendo Power, if I'm remembering correctly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we had Resident Evil on there before that. But uh, yeah, they were fairly rare. But uh, yeah, we kind of got the chance to blow the lid off that one. And we went to Sega. We played it. You know, it's by Platinum. And you know, we were very, very impressed. We saw what they were doing. Like, yeah, this is just something really cool. People need to know about this. So yeah, we got the green light to put an Emerald game on the cover, which did not happen terribly often. And that was a fun one. It was a really good game. I'm shocked that we haven't seen that one pop back up at some point. Yeah, I mean, it was just, again, one of those titles that uh, didn't really find the audience. Like I was saying with Silent Hill, you know, M-rated and we just seem to not really go together for whatever reason. You know, it's got this vast audience, but uh, if it's not uh, Wii Sports or something, it's like, yeah, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, absolute shame. Anyway, we're really only scratching the surface of underappreciated and overlooked Wii games. You know, there are tons of other ones out there. You know, stuff like, you know, Zack and Wiki, Quest for Barbaro's Treasure, Miramasa, The Demon Blade. But, uh, you know, if you happen to miss out on any of these titles that we have mentioned, I strongly suggest you do whatever you can to track them down. You know, I ended up playing several of these to refresh my memory before doing this podcast, and they are pretty much all still fantastic, even for being on a 15-year-old system. Yeah, you just might find a new favorite. Yeah, indeed. 
And that pretty much takes care of our overall discussion of Wii as well as the hidden gems. So why don't we take our intermission and then we come back, we will discuss another important key aspect of Wii, that being The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. We are back and we are ready to continue discussing the 15th anniversary of the Wii with a look back at one of the system's key launch titles and in fact one of that year's most anticipated games overall, that being The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Oh man, I remember the hype for this game was just off the charts. Yeah, it was through the roof. I don't think I've ever seen a Zelda before or after that had that level of hype. And a lot of it was unfair because of The Wind Waker. There's still, to this day, you know, some stereotype against The Wind Waker. Hmm. Personally, I'm, I'm more of a Wind Waker fan than Twilight Princess. But um, I remember just being floored about the I was so excited for Twilight Princess. Terrific game. I don't think it matched Wind Waker, but that's just me. Well, I think you are totally right in that it is easily one of the most anticipated Zelda games ever, if not the most anticipated and yeah i think part of that was the return to the more mature art style and the fact that it was sort of more like a follow-up to ocarina of time rather than going in a different direction like wind waker did i mean when nintendo first showed off zelda for gamecube they did originally show this title with a more realistic style and you know for those who have forgotten wind waker was very controversial at the time for being super tuny it was nothing like that early image that was shown and twilight princess sort of came back to try to deliver on that early gamecube promise i mean this also was a gamecube game it was originally announced for gamecube but only later did it get announced to be hitting wii as well but yeah when it was unveiled at e3 2004 people went absolutely nuts it was the biggest reaction i have ever seen so i think to call it highly anticipated would be an understatement for sure. I actually remember having the poster from EGM hanging in my bedroom for, like, years. <laughs> Very nice. And yes, just like the Wii as a whole, this was a game that is highly personal for me. And I think it would be fair to say that, you know, the fact that this game existed and sort of that Nintendo was going in this direction, uh, you know, sort of listening to the fans trying to make something that people really, really wanted, I think it was an influence on me joining Nintendo Power. You know, Nintendo was reacting. Nintendo was going in the right direction. And uh, 
Then, after I did join Nintendo Power, I spent a lot of time getting very familiar with this game. Now, originally, this game was supposed to be a late 2005 release, I believe, which was just a few months after I joined NP. But then the game got delayed by a whole year, which, you know, I'm not sure we realized at the time it was, so it could, you know, jump from GameCube to Wii as well. But at any rate, it was a little bit disappointing. But the flip side to that was that I got to have a whole year to work on preview coverage of this game. And at the time, Nintendo Power was doing these developer diary articles focusing on various creators and various aspects of the game. And I got put in charge of editing and localizing these articles for as long as this series persisted. And then once E3 2006 rolled around and there was a playable demo, I got to do the in-depth hands-on report about that. There's something really cool about being able to share something before it's out, and I can't even fathom being able to do it for something like Twilight Princess. Yeah, I mean, it was something that was super exciting to do. I mean, I it felt like there was a lot of pressure because I knew how big this game was and how much people were excited about it and how much they cared and how much they wanted to know about it. But, uh, you know, for me, it could not have been more exciting. It was like, you know, this is why I am here at Nintendo Power, so I can play this game and share my enthusiasm for this game. But, you know, for a lot of the time, for the most part, I was still in the dark as much as anybody else when it came to the entire scope of the game. And there was a lot that, you know, I didn't know about it either. However, there was this point in the fall of 2006, and I apologize if I've told this story in the podcast before, but in the fall of 2006, all of Nintendo Power was summoned down to the treehouse and we got a private demo of the game to learn what it was all about. Uh, however, I was out of town that day. I happened to take a day or two off and I missed this demo, which totally sucked, of course. But luckily, you know, after I came back, they said, okay, we're going to have another demo, basically just for me. So I got to learn all about the game, the progression, the dungeons, the locations, the wolf abilities, Tears of Light, Postals, everything. And I came away from this demo saying, oh, wow, this game looks awesome. It's going to be everything I'd hoped for. I cannot wait. And I'm pretty sure I said out loud to my coworkers, you know, this looks phenomenal. I'm glad I am not the guy writing the strategy guide on this, but this is looking totally awesome. You know, George, one of the senior writers, was already assigned the strategy guide, and, you know, I did not envy that at all. Yeah, I'd imagine that would be a hard one. And then, like, that afternoon, or maybe the next day, my boss calls me and says, hey, how would you like to write the strategy guide? We have about, you know, two or three weeks to do it. And I'm like, sure, let's do that. But fortunately, you know, it wasn't just me. George was still involved in the writing, so we became a tag team where he would cover up to one dungeon, and then I'd cover up to the next dungeon, and then we'd just go back and forth writing the guide that way. But still, that is a lot of game to cover, you know, to master and to write about in that time span. And that doesn't even include sections for, you know, items and collectibles and whatnot. And, you know, I could see George was already under a lot of pressure. He was already pretty stressed out. But, you know, suddenly I was in the mix and it was all systems go. 
And it's like, okay, you know, time's a waste and you can't stop and catch your breath. And just suddenly I was completely immersed in this game from that point on for the next two or three weeks. Pretty much I was Zelda 24-7. Long days, long nights, long hours. But, you know, I was playing a 99% complete version of, like, the most anticipated game in memory, and I was getting paid overtime for it. So I did not have very much to complain about, and I got to see, you know, a lot of uh, really cool stuff, not just in the game itself, but, you know, like a, a planned feature that was supposed to let you transfer your progress from the GameCube game to the Wii that ended up, you know, not making it into the final published version. And I probably just violated some NDA, so uh, don't tell <laughs> Nintendo about that. Hush, hush. <laughs> So yeah, that was an intense whirlwind, but we did get it done. And I should say, we had the support of the graphic design team who was playing it right alongside us. And we could turn to the treehouse for any questions we had. So it really never would have been possible to get this thing done without all of them. But you know, between all of us, we did manage to get it done in time. And then once it was done, I was like, woo, okay, maybe I can relax for a little bit. And my boss is like, okay, so you're ready to write the review now? They're like, sure, let's do that. And in my head, I'm like, oh, man, this is an even bigger responsibility maybe. But, you know, I wasn't about to turn that down. And I think George did the feature article in the magazine for that issue. And meanwhile, I handled the Wii review. And then after that, I think he did the review of the GameCube version. And then they came to me again. They're like, okay, how about some in-depth strategy for this 50-level Cave of Ordeals? And like, okay, let's do that too. And, you know, somehow we managed to compress the whole 50 levels into just a couple of pages in the magazine. So, yeah, this game was just a huge part of my job and my life for, uh, you know, probably more than a year overall. I hope that the listeners realize, like, how much you went through with this. Like I'm breaking out in hives hearing you tell this story because we've had our similar circumstances, but nothing on that level. And, uh, oh my gosh, that's, that's, I can't even fathom the amount of work that must've been. It was quite a bit of work, but like I said, you know, had a great support team and, uh, you know, between everybody involved, you know, we were able to, to make it all click. And I've heard from some people when they do get, so intimately involved with a game like that and they are playing it pretty much constantly they kind of end up getting sick of it or even hating it regardless of how good the game is but that did not happen to me i still consider it to be perhaps perhaps my favorite 3d zelda ever certainly it's one of them i mean for the you know traditional you know quote unquote guided for lack of a better term 3d zelda games you know i really don't think any game has done it better. I think with Zelda, especially 3D Zelda, the bar is so high. I mean, every 3D Zelda game has been good to great. Yes, yes. So I think that everybody kind of has their personal reasons for why each one is their favorite. And maybe it's because you went through uh, all that with Twilight Princess that it is that, but it could also just be the fact that Twilight Princess is great. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I like this game so much. And I think it starts with the approach to Hyrule in general. Like, I felt this was really the first fully realized 3D Hyrule. 
Like, I mean, obviously there's Ocarina of Time, which is a groundbreaking and landmark game. But, you know, in that one, the core of Hyrule is kind of just this big, empty field with a farm in the middle. And then there was Wind Waker, which was also a fantastic game, but it was all about the ocean. There really wasn't a core of Hyrule to explore. You know, after this, there was Skyward Sword, where Hyrule was broken into these distinct chunks, so you can't even journey from one end of Hyrule to the other. But in Twilight Princess, Hyrule is vast and complex, with a good balance of enemies and caves and secrets and out-of-the-way places that just beg to be explored. You know, much more interesting design and architecture than Ocarina, in my opinion. No offense to that game. I've never thought about it that way. That's actually a really interesting angle. I, I'd never considered that. And then beyond that, I also just really like the game's aesthetic. I mean, it is perhaps more traditional fantasy than some of the more unique or stylized approaches. And I think it certainly owes some design cues to popular fantasy of the time, not the least of which is the Lord of the Rings movies. But I still really, really like it. I love the attention to detail. I appreciate the semi-realistic yet still colorful, cartoony approach. The characters are very expressive. The lighting is really cool. You know, I especially like that emphasis on the golden hues of Twilight. The enemies look really threatening. Link looks cool. Zelda looks cool. Ganondorf looks cool. Everybody looks really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it it had a gorgeous style to it, and I think it was what everybody needed after Wind Waker, regardless of of how good Wind Waker was. I think everybody did need that. Yeah, and speaking of Link and the other characters, this is one of my favorite versions of Link. Like, he is not a kid. He is an adult. He is a farmhand with mad skills. He's basically Luke Skywalker. And I've always liked that better than the trope of the little kid somehow miraculously saving the world. Um, You know, that works. You know, that's what happened in Ocarina. I guess that's what happened in the original Zelda. Uh, That's what happened in Wind Waker. But uh, I really prefer this approach if I have to choose between the two. I like the fact that he is cool, young adult Link. He's got an earring. He has, you know, cool sword moves. Like he's got a, you know, really brutal downward thrust. I like him, found him very appealing. And to go along with that, I think Midna is easily my favorite partner character in the Zelda series. She's kind of snarky and sort of tsundere, but she has a really good backstory, a good reason for palling around with Link, and her character really grows and becomes sympathetic as the game goes on. And the two of them together create one of my favorite moments in any Zelda game, and there is a big spoiler here, so spoiler alert, spoiler alert, which is about halfway through when Link and Midna kind of get their butts kicked by Zant, and Midna is dying, Link is trapped in wolf form, and you have to navigate back through Hyrule Castle to save her life while this really somber music known as Midna's Lament is playing. And it's one of the darker moments in maybe the entire series up to that point, but it's really emotional, really powerful, and just you know one of the things that really excited me about this game. You know, you mentioned Nintendo learning from what people were saying about previous entries and I have to wonder if Midna came about kind of as a, a result of everybody just hating Navi. <laughs> I don't know if they hated Navi. They were definitely irritated by Navi, but yeah, she is sort of the anti Navi for sure. Irritated is probably a better word. 
I mean, not all of the characters, uh, you know, stacked up quite as well as Midna. Like this version of Princess Zelda, or I guess it's actually Queen Zelda in this one, is one of my least favorite versions of her just because she really isn't in the game very much, doesn't really have much personality from what we see of her. You know, she's just not there a lot. And Ganondorf is kind of, he's fine. Uh, the best thing about him to me is that it is the same Ganondorf from Ocarina of Time. So we get some really cool continuity there, which, you know, hadn't really been that common between Zelda games. Like, you know, Wind Waker had some really cool continuity as well. Don't get me wrong. But uh, yeah, this one does uh, as well. It ties into the events that occurred in Ocarina. And Ganondorf seems like a real menace. And uh, you get you know, why he's so angry and where he is coming from. If I'm being honest, when I played through Twilight Princess, I didn't get that connection with Ocarina. Uh, it wasn't until Hyrule Historia came out, you know, a few years later, where they laid out the timeline and I really, truly got an appreciation for how those games connected. Because for me, it, it was almost kind of a downgrade from where Wind Waker was this direct Ocarina sequel. And to me, like Twilight Princess felt like, oh, they're rebooting. Oh, how'd you, how'd you miss that? I mean, they actually I totally talk about, <laughs> I mean, first of all, they show him again, spoiler alert. They show him getting like stabbed through the chest as like punishment for the actions he took in Ocarina of Time and they're like, oh crap, he's still alive. And they bash him into the Twilight Realm. So that that connection was, uh, I thought, very front and center and something I caught on to, um, you know, right away that, you know, really excited me about the story of that game. Yeah, I, I totally missed that. And then once I read up on it in, in Hyrule Historia, I went, oh my gosh, like I totally didn't get that connection. And now it's making me, you know, on top of this, it's making me really want to replay it. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it would really seem very different if you uh, approach it realizing that versus not realizing that. That is probably true. However, one of the other big villains in the game, Zant, you know, he starts out like totally badass and threatening and again, you know, quite this menace. And you know, like I said, it leads to, you know, one of the most uh, emotional points in the story. But then, you know, later on towards the end, like when you actually fight him, he's like super goofy and kind of pathetic. And I don't really see a reason for why he's changed. So that part ended up disappointing me just a little bit. On the other hand, I do really like Elia, who is Link's romantic interest in this game. And uh, I think having a romantic interest who's not Zelda really works. Like, I never ship Link and Zelda in pretty much any Zelda game myself, uh, I guess except for probably Skyward Sword, I suppose, because you know, throughout the series, the Links and Zeldas tend to be descendants of each other, and so that gets really weird really fast if you think about it. <laughs> so, you know, I like Link having a canonical romantic interest in this game that is definitely not Zelda. Yeah, I've never shipped the two. I've never seen any kind of romantic interests between the two i i, I mean don't... like in zelda 2 i think they kiss behind the curtain at the end or something but again i think that one's like one of the last ones in continuity so maybe maybe that one's okay i don't know i mean we don't get a lot of general romance in nintendo games yeah anyway it's more implied so i i've never i've never had a, a romantic connection between those two characters i'm with you on that Anyway, I thought that the connection between Link and Elia was uh, really well done. I thought that that was an excellent addition in this game. And other things I love about Twilight Princess are the execution of some of the series' staples. 
Yeah, we have some really fantastic dungeon designs here, some really incredible bosses. You know, the dungeon set inside a mansion inhabited by friendly yetis is a standout just for how weird it is. The boss fight against the giant Goma is epic and terrifying and satisfying all at once. And I absolutely love the fight against Twilight Dragon Argorok. You know, the claw shots are a big part of that fight. The claw shots are one of my favorite items, probably my favorite item overall in the entire Zelda series. So that one's really, really fun. And, you know, that takes me to the fact that this was the first game to have the double claw shots. I mean, one hook shot is really cool, and having two hook shots or two claw shots is even better, especially with the free 3D movement in this game. I also really like the spinner, which is a unique item that appears only in this game, I believe. Uh, basically, it's this gear you can ride on and use it to activate machinery. But the movement of it, the way it ratchets up these tracks, the sound it makes, are all just, you know, really super satisfying. It also incorporates highly into the fight against Stalord, which is this, you know, giant epic skeleton boss. Oh, and another thing that is really cool, I wouldn't want to forget, are the magnetic capabilities of the iron boots in this one. And, you know, walking up the walls of the ceiling is always a trip. I was a big fan of that spinner myself. I thought that was a really cool new addition. Yeah, they pulled that off really well. So for all that stuff, I, you know, just really, really enjoyed the game. As I said, uh, one of my favorites for sure. But I am not going to say it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And 15 years ago, I'm pretty sure I said so too, and man, did I get hate mail for it, for not giving this game a perfect 10 out of 10. What did you give it, out of curiosity? Um, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head, probably a 9.5, which, you know, I still think works out pretty well. And what I said then is probably that it has some pacing issues. Like, it's a pretty slow game to get going. Like, the first 90 minutes or so is all preamble and basically tutorial tasks before the game really takes off. And, you know, that on its own, that's kind of par for the course. You know, Wind Waker was kind of slow to get going. Ocarina's a little slow to get going. Uh, Skyward Sword is slow to get going. But you know, the thing is, it, the pacing issues don't really end there. The structure is sort of odd. Like, you know, you enter a new area and you are immediately stuck as a wolf. Which, that's something we haven't even talked about, is that, you know, that's sort of the game's main unique gameplay hook is, you know, Link can turn into a wolf and use unique wolf powers. That's why there is a wolf on the box art. <laughs> but yeah, so you go into a new area and you are stuck as a wolf and you have to hunt down these tiers of light in the twilightified world and then you revive the area. And it is literally a fetch quest. You are a canine and you are fetching these tiers of light. And, you know, I do rather enjoy those parts, but, you know, some, I know, People believe it slows down the progression too much, which is why Nintendo streamlined it just a little bit in Twilight Princess HD. But, you know, once you've found the tears, you return to the regular Light World version of Hyrule. And, you know, you do your quest stuff, you go to a dungeon, you get an item, you fight a boss, and then the cycle repeats. But that's only for, like, the first three dungeons, you know, like half the game, maybe less. After that you are no longer forced into the twilight areas, you're no longer forced into wolf form. Suddenly, wolf form is kind of an afterthought. You barely have to use it, and the game becomes more traditional. You know, you can use it, uh, you know, anytime you want to, and it is required once in a while, but, uh, you know, it's just like uh, any other item, and it sort of feels uh, 
underutilized in the latter half of the game for being such an integral part of the experience early on. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on the pacing issues, especially that start. I think that you're right that there are a lot of 3D Zeldas that start very slow, but um, I think Twilight Princess kind of takes the cake for slow starts for the series. And then later on in the game, I think this is also sort of near the halfway point, there was just this super annoying required puzzle when you were going after the Master Sword. And there are very few hints on this puzzle. The puzzle is pretty complicated. It takes a lot of trial and error. And let me tell you, if I had not been able to just go to the treehouse and ask, I probably, you know, the guide would just ended right there. It's like, sorry, can't get through this puzzle in two weeks. It's impossible. Uh, but yeah, someone I think pretty much probably just gave me the solution. <laughs> Figuring it out on my own would have been a nightmare. But it's just weird to have in a Nintendo game, in a Zelda game, this show-stopping puzzle with mechanics that have never been in the game previously, just sort of shoehorned in like that out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything too much, but uh, if you play the game, I'm sure you remember what I'm talking about. And then, you know, one other just a little disappointment for me was the lack of a magic system. Like, everything else in the game, the environments, the items, the exploration, the combat, the horseback riding... Yeah, the horseback riding is actually another really cool thing about this game. You know, just riding on horseback during the twilight, the sun is setting, and this vast Hyrule that just makes it so beautiful. Um, but anyway, um, back to what I was saying, all that stuff felt like a step up over previous Zelda games. But for magic, they just like, mm, nope, no magic in this game. You know, we had magic in Ocarina, we had magic in Wind Waker, but they sort of left it out in this one. And it doesn't really hurt anything by not having it but I just thought it would have been so cool if Link did have some magic abilities there is magic armor in this game but it runs on rupees instead of magic which kind of makes it a lot like real life now that I think about it <laughs> it's a strange omission to be sure anyway you add all the stuff up and you get a game that you know it's not perfect but it is still indeed one of my favorites I feel like as the years have gone by, the shine has kind of worn off this game. You know, all that, uh, you know, super enthusiasm, you know, that we saw initially, people are just kind of like, eh, whatever. But I feel like Zelda games are kind of cyclical. You know, as we alluded to, when Wind Waker debuted, a lot of people pooped on it, but now it is beloved. And the same is true with Majora's Mask. And this one, you know, everybody was so excited when it first appeared, and now it's kind of like, eh, it's traditional, eh, it was never that good. And the people who say that, I say, well, that is a bunch of malarkey, sir. Uh, it was excellent 15 years ago, and it still is today. Yeah, it's funny for what a big deal it was back in the day. The hype has fallen off it a lot. I think if you'll ask most Zelda fans what their favorite you know, series entries are, probably wouldn't make a lot of people's lists not that it's a bad game I, I think that it's a very good one but i think we are in that part of the cycle and this is not just true for zelda it's true for a lot of series where you go through these weird cycles where mm -hmm. everybody's into it everybody loves it everybody hates it there's the blowback and then you know yep. you kind of find the middle ground a few years later so maybe that's where we are with twilight princess right now yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, give it another five years, another 10 years, and the nostalgia will be red hot once again, I think. Well, let me tell you one thing, you know, since we're, we're talking about the Wii era in general, I've noticed this a lot. You know, now that it's been 15 years, 
it's weird, but I'm seeing so many people talk about how they grew up with the Wii and <laughs> realizing like, oh my God, all these kids that were 10 are now 25 mm-hmm. and you're seeing it a lot. Like I don't consider Mario Kart Wii to be one of the best games in the series. I'm a huge Double Dash fan. I love Mario Kart 8. Wii is just kind of an afterthought to me, but there is this generation that it's the best Mario Kart game. And maybe we'll see that with Twilight Princess at some point. It's hard to say. I suspect that uh, we very well might. We very well might. Uh, One other thing I want to add about Twilight Princess is that if you do happen to be a big fan of the game like I am, do yourself a favor and check out the manga series from Viz. I think they're already up to like nine volumes so far, and it certainly takes some liberties with the story, but it adds a ton to the narrative, especially to Link's history and backstory and character growth. Like, who is this guy who lives as a ranch hand in Orion Village all by himself? You know, where did he come from? How did he end up there? It answers those questions as well as lots of others that you probably never even considered. Uh, It's also a lot more violent than the games. It is uh, very uh, M-rated in some ways, for sure. But uh, not in a bad way. Yeah, like I said, uh, totally recommended if you're a Twilight Princess fan. I'll have to check that out. I was a big fan of the Ocarina one they did. Yeah, this one, I would say, probably better. Nice. That's glowing praise. Anyway, 15 years later, Twilight Princess, I would say, is still a legendary game. And the Wii... While, you know, as a whole, you know, in some ways uh, doesn't quite hold up, but in other ways really does, you know, it still has a lot going for it and holds an incredibly significant place in gaming history. I think it's a shame that Twilight Princess HD hasn't been ported to Switch to celebrate Zelda's 35th anniversary this year, since that and Wind Waker HD are probably just about the only two Wii U games from Nintendo that haven't been ported yet. But uh, nonetheless, I uh, feel like we've uh, covered pretty much everything we could in this discussion of uh, Wii and uh, Twilight Princess. So uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add, Mark? Yeah, I will. I will say this. I have said this for the last year at least now. I know that there are a lot of people who are bummed that Wind Waker HD and Twilight Princess HD aren't on switch yet Mm -hmm. there's no doubt in my mind those games are coming at some point i know we keep hearing the rumors i know we've seen some things there was actually some buzz today that there might be something at the game awards this year i don't know if there's any truth to that but um nintendo does not like to leave money on the table those wii u games sold nothing we've seen pretty much everything from wii u come to switch there's no doubt in my mind At some point, Nintendo's got to slot them in. Well, I certainly hope you are correct about that. Very much so, indeed. Hey, me too. (laughs) Anyway, I guess that pretty much means it's time for us to wrap up this episode of the podcast. But I think before we go, we do have time for one more thing, and that is a dramatic reading. These are always such a highlight. This time, it is from the back of the box of the retail Wii game, Ninja Bread Man. Candyland is under attack. Hordes of snapping cupcakes, angry bees, and jelly monsters have taken over this once sweet and tasty land. Only one man can stop this evil army of monster cakes. 
He's one tough cookie. A guy that won't crumble under the pressure. Ninja Bread Man is here. Throw ninja stars to stun enemies, and then follow up with Ninja Bread Man's mighty samurai sword, reducing enemies into a quivering pool of raspberry jam. Collect power-ups to increase the power and range of Ninja Bread Man's weapons, and use ninja skills to jump onto high ledges, dash past enemies, and find the magic candies. Can the Ninja Bread Man save the day? Candyland's future depends on you. You always manage to find like some of the best written ones for <laughs> games that aren't any good. <laughs> like someone really put in a lot of time and effort that I, I'm I'm very impressed with that one. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, as you alluded to, apparently the game is terrible. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> I can't remember if I've ever actually played it or not. But, uh, yeah, from what I have seen, it looks pretty crummy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, I saw it. <laughs> All right. Well, I do believe that does it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Power Pros. We are still not on a regular schedule, of course, so I'm not sure when we'll be back again. But nonetheless, you can reach us at PowerProsPod on Twitter and Facebook, as well as via email at PowerProsPod at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can reach Mark at MarkTheChamp. M-A-R-C. Yes. So thank you for listening, everybody. For myself, Mark DeChamps. Always great to be here, Hoff. And the announcer from Wii Sports. You earned a gold medal. Keep on playing with power.